You guys can keep your Bibles uh, at the section that uh, Mike just read. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. That's going to be our, our text for this morning. Last Sunday, we looked at the testimony of John the Baptist. He boldly declared to the people that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is the Son of God. That really is his testimony in a nutshell. He proclaimed those things about Jesus while even pointing to Jesus physically. Jesus was there when all the people were gathered, and John is pointing at him and saying, he's the Lamb of God, he's the Son of God. He's... So that was his testimony, and there's another part of his testimony in the next chapter, I believe, that we'll look at, but that's part of it there, and that's what we focused on last week. In keeping with this gospel's twofold purpose, evangelism and apologetics, Evangelism has to do with preaching the gospel that people might be saved, and apologetics has to do with defending the truth claims of Scripture. So keeping uh, in step with that twofold purpose, John, the author of this gospel, now turns our attention to the first disciples of Christ, who later became powerful witnesses to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, The event that we're going to look at here in the text is not to be confused with the calling of the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, or Matthew 9, 9, uh, and over in uh, Mark 1, 16 through 20, or even the naming of the disciples in Matthew 10, 1 through 4. So what we're looking at is a different encounter with disciples, a different event altogether. Those other things are other examples of how Jesus called and named and all that. MacArthur, uh, who's one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers today, I use his commentary all the time and I like to quote him regularly, he said this, uh, this event, he's speaking of what we're looking at, this event constituted a preliminary exposure of John the Baptist's disciples to Jesus. They eventually dedicated their lives to him as true disciples and apostles when Jesus called them to permanent service after these events. And Jesus, we know if you look at the Gospels, we look and and see that Jesus appointed 12 disciples to His leadership team. And our passage identifies the first five disciples, and maybe even six if you include James, the brother of John. Uh, Some scholars say that he was also uh, called at this time, but we have no record of that in this Gospel. But we're looking at the first five disciples Uh, And this text basically describes how they met Jesus and how they began to follow Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, as well as many other things in a nice application at the end. So let me pray for us as we uh, enter this time of study. Father, we humble ourselves now and we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts, our ears, uh, to to the gospel, to the truth. Uh, to your word here, that you would uh, come in power and not just open us to your word, but that you would apply it and transform us by it. Um, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, uh, that we would be uh, corrected and even rebuked if that's what we need. Whatever it is that, that, that we need, we pray that you would uh, accomplish uh, those needs, that you would fulfill those needs and uh, for those of us who uh, love you and are called according to your purposes, for us that, that are Christians, that we name the name of Christ, I pray that you would sanctify us and make us a little bit more like Jesus this morning. It is a process that lasts our entire lifetime. and We even have a resurrection to look forward to out in the future, but we pray that you would do some of that sanctifying work today in our hearts. Uh, help to uh, just make us like Christ. Um, open our minds to the scripture, apply it to us, and help us to live it out. And uh, we just give you our time and attention right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get to work. Uh, We're going to begin, actually kind of divided it up in such a way. So the first thing that we're going to look at is the calling of Andrew and John. The calling of Andrew and John. That's verses 35 through 40, five verses. I'll read it again. The next day, again, 
John, and the reference there is, is, is to John the Baptist. Uh, the next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, so he had disciples. Uh, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, he like points to him again, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples uh, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So it's like they, he's pointing to him, he's saying there's the Lamb of God, they immediately begin to follow Jesus. And then in verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Oh, well, there's this seeker-sensitive movement, right? No. Uh, And then they said to him, Rabbi, and look at the parenthetical statement, which means teacher. So Rabbi translates as teacher. They said, where are you staying? They didn't answer the question is what they're seeking. They just said, where are you staying? And he replied, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So the first thing that we notice here in this text is how John the Baptist focuses his disciples' attention on Jesus. Right? He points out to Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God. He's taking their attention and diverting it off of him onto the Lamb of God, onto Jesus. It's the very first thing that he does. What is a disciple, though? Right? It says, two of his disciples. What does disciple mean? Maybe some of us don't know what that word means. Uh, the Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines a disciple as someone who follows another person or another way of life and who submits himself to the discipline, teaching of that leader or way. That's a disciple. The Greek word for disciple is mathetes, mathetes, and it means follower. That's the easiest way to define what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower of someone or a way of life or a theology or something of that nature. During these days, the Jewish rabbis would literally hand-select certain students to be their disciples. And it was a tremendous honor to be selected because not everyone was selected, not everyone made the cut. You had to, as a potential disciple of a particular rabbi, you had to possess great potential. You had to be at the top of your class. You had to be an excellent student of the Torah. You had to have your act together. They didn't just pick anyone. Well, hey, you look good. Come on, let's do this. You had to have something about you. Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, was hand-selected by Israel's most renowned rabbi, Gamaliel, when he was young. That'll tell you something about the Apostle Paul. He was an excellent student of God's Word back in those days, and, and he had it together, and he lived the life, he walked the walk, and he was noticed by Gamaliel, who was basically the highest and most recognized rabbi of that day, and he was hand-selected by him. What an honor and privilege. Of course, later Paul said that's all rubbish, because what matters is knowing Christ and not knowing this or that and being an expert in this. These disciples that were picked by these rabbis would literally follow the rabbi wherever he went, like little ducklings following mama. They would listen to his teachings. They would take notes. They would assist the rabbi with his duties. They were literally with the guy all the time, doing all that he said and following all his instruction and assisting him. If they continued to excel, he's Disciples, they would later become rabbis and have their own disciples to shape and mold and make into, you know, rabbis. Or they would serve in some other capacity. Some went on to serve in the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Israel. Some went in to become teachers in the synagogues. It just sky's the limit if you excelled and your rabbi just took you and he would just exalt you and put you in a high position if you were really great. John the Baptist had disciples who followed his teachings and assisted him at the riverside. In fact, he had disciples that were even doing the baptism that he performed. They were doing it for him, that baptism of repentance. So he was kind of like a rabbi, but I like to think of John the Baptist as a prophet. 
But he had disciples who were with him and who ministered alongside of him and listened to him and wrote things down and did all of that. He had students. The day after John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and testified to who he is, he was, and this is what we see in the text, he was standing with two of his disciples, Andrew, and who's the other one? He's not named here. The other one is John, the author of this gospel, the one who's too humble to mention his name anywhere in the gospel. It was him. It was Andrew and John. They were standing there with John the Baptist as Jesus walked by. John the Baptist looks over at him and says, look, guys, there he is again. Behold, the Lamb of God, you know, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the the Messiah. It was literally his way of saying to his disciples, there's Israel's Messiah, go after him. It was as if he was saying, my time with you is finished. It's time for you to graduate and go spend time with the one who I've been proclaiming to you all this time. You you need to go follow him. Your days of following me are over. I was just a, a rung on a ladder, a step in the whole scheme of things, and you need to go after him. And what happened? The two disciples were absolutely filled with curiosity. They knew who Jesus was because of their faithful teacher and rabbi, but they were filled with curiosity. They didn't know what, everything that they needed to know about him at this point. And so they wanted to see if their teachers, their rabbi's claims were true. So what did they do? They went after Jesus and began to follow Jesus. And I think that, you know, we don't know, there's no detail here, uh, so it's conjecture. I'm, I'm putting stuff into the text, but I don't know how, what this looked like. Maybe Jesus heard the sound of crunching grass behind him or something. These guys weren't ninjas. They were fishermen. You've seen fishermen work, right? No ninja there. You know? Hey. So I don't know how it went down, but maybe it was dry grass crunching or something like that. I don't know, but they're following Jesus. Jesus notices them, maybe because he has the divine attributes of omniscience and stuff. He just knows what's going to... I don't know how it played out, but he turns to them and says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And those two guys probably looked at each other and said, I thought we were being quieter. Jesus did not, however, ask this question for his benefit. It wasn't that he was actually seeking information. He knew what they wanted. He knew what they were about. They were disciples of John the Baptist, which indicated that they were convicted of their sin because that's what John the Baptist preached. And they were also seeking the forgiveness and righteousness Messiah would bring. These are the things that John the Baptist preached. If you have a disciple and you're hearing that all the time, those are the things I need from Messiah. You learn that that's Messiah, what do you do? He's right, I need to go after Messiah and seek to receive those things from him. So Jesus' question wasn't about, you know, what are you really doing here? He knew what they were about. He knows what's in a man. We'll see that in the next chapter. He knows what's going on here. He can see the heart. He knows the secrets of our heart. So his question wasn't about gaining information, acquiring information. It was meant to challenge them to consider their motives. I like what Richard Linsky wrote. He said, he bid them to look searchingly at their inmost longings and desires. What are, you're following me, what are you after? What are you seeking? Why are you doing what you're doing? And I, I, I believe they, they knew what they wanted deep down inside, but they were not yet certain that Jesus could provide it. They'd heard their rabbi. They heard their teacher. He said things. It's not that they didn't believe him, but they thought, okay, if he's the Messiah, we need to look into it a little bit more and find out if our teacher is right. They weren't sure, so they replied. They didn't say, well, we need you to forgive our sins and do all that business. We need the gospel. They didn't say that. They weren't sure if he was the gospel. They thought so, so they replied, Rabbi, where are you staying? When I first read that, I thought, okay, why would you ask that? Well, they asked him that so they could go with him and spend time with him and find out who he is. (laughs) That's why they did it. 
They didn't say, well, here's what we're looking for. They said, where are you staying? Implying we'd like to go with you and hang out and, and get to know you. We'd like to hear it from your own lips. We've heard it from him. He's a great guy, although he eats weird bugs and stuff. But we want to hear it from you. That's what they were after. They wanted to hang out with him. They wanted to get to know him. And Jesus obliged them. He said, come, come and you will see. Let me tell you something. Those are the greatest words ever uttered, ever spoken. The invitation of God to come and see. You can't get better words than that. Come and you will see. I will show you where I'm staying. But Jesus' intention was to show them something much greater than where he was staying, the Motel 6 or wherever. Come and you will see. This was an invitation. This was a calling. He was calling them to come and see and to learn and to submit. And they had absolutely no idea what was in store for them. Sounds good. Right? They did not know what they did not know what was buried in that invitation. Come and you will see. They didn't know. Maybe, well, we're just gonna go see his house and check out his pad. The things they would hear, the things they would see, the things they would experience. They really had no idea what was coming. And from this moment forward, their lives would never ever be the same. It's a glorious invitation, but it's a serious invitation, man. Much is required to come and see. Much is required to follow. The Apostle John wrote down what time these things happened. You notice the the term there, the 10th hour, the 10th hour translates as 4 p.m. Why did he write this down? Because he wanted to document for any and all who read his gospel to know when he was first called by the Lord Jesus. He can remember the moment that he was called to come and see. He documented it. It's not just a matter of recording history or being precise. He may have even documented it for his own good. I remember when Jesus first called me to follow. Next, they followed Jesus to where he was staying and talked with him for several hours, maybe overnight. We don't know what the conversation consisted of. There's no record of it here. But verse 41 shows that it was illuminating Lastly, before we move on here, lastly, we are told that one of the disciples who followed Jesus that day was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The other, as I said, was too humble to identify himself, but we know it was John, the author of this gospel. So that's the calling of Andrew and John. Number two, the calling of Simon Peter. That's a person that most of us are familiar with, right? We've, we've heard of that guy. Simon Peter, 41 and 42, says he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, parenthetical statement, which means Christ. And then it says he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, parenthetical statement, which means Peter. Okay, so obviously the time spent with Jesus that evening had convinced Andrew and John of his true identity. He's going around telling people already, we have found the Messiah. Now that does not mean, however, that they fully understood the implications of Jesus' Messiahship. The disciples' understanding of that would grow over the years as they spent time with him. So it's not like we got it all down. They just believed at this point that they had found Messiah, and the first thing Andrew did was go and tell his brother Simon that they had found Messiah. He was already living out Matthew 28, trying to go out and preach Jesus and make disciples. He goes right to his immediate family. Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek equivalent is Christ. I've said this to you before. Christ was not Jesus' last name. 
Oh, his name was Jesus Christ. What a cool-ass name. No, Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. Christ is the title of Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. It means anointed one. He is the anointed Messiah of God. He then brought Simon, speaking of Andrew, he then brought Simon to where Jesus was staying and introduced them. Oh, this is Jesus, the Messiah. This is Simon. Now, scholars believe that John went and found his brother James and brought him to Jesus at the same time. Could have happened. There are some historical, historical writings and things that seem to indicate that that's what happened because Technically, the first four disciples of Jesus were uh, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. So it could have been that that happened too, but we don't have a record of it here. I want you to notice when you look at the text how Jesus already knew who Simon was. He knew who he was. He knew his name and he knew his father's name. How? Was it because of his divine omniscience, his all-knowledge? Maybe. Could it be that Andrew told him about Simon? Maybe. I think the end of verse 42 reveals that it had to do with his ability to know all things, even though we see the limitations on that when it comes to when he would return, something that the Father only knew. Jesus referenced that later on, but he, still, he was still fully God. He was still fully God, so he didn't become less God when he stepped out of heaven and became a man. So some of these things were, in, these things were intact still. I don't know how they all work together, but verse 42, I think it says that it has to do with his omniscience. When, when Jesus first met Simon, he immediately gave him the name Cephas. Cephas is an Aramaic word which means rock, R-O-C-K. Not the, you know, if you smell what the rock is cooking, you know, that guy, I guess he's going to run for president now. I don't know where, you know, Trump becomes president, every single Hollywood person now wants to be president. He started something that I don't think is ever going to stop. Oh, Lord. Kid Rock is running for Senate. Who knows? It means rock, like a foundation of rock. The Greek equivalent is Petros from which we get the name Peter. By giving Simon the name Cephas or Peter or Rock, Jesus was declaring who he would become in his character and predicting how he would use him in relationship to the foundation of the church. Later, Peter would testify to who Jesus is, calling him the Christ. Jesus has a conversation with his disciples, and what are people saying about me? Well, they said, you're this, or this, or this, or this. And he said, well, what do you say of me? Who do you believe I am? Nobody answers but Peter. And Peter says, you're the Christ. It's obvious. And Jesus replies, I will build my church upon this rock. What rock was Jesus referring to? Well, it would be easy to think that he was talking about building it on Peter because he's technically the rock in a sense. But that's not what he was talking about. Jesus would never build his church on someone other than himself. Why would you build your church upon a fallen, sinful man, especially one like Peter, who loves the Lord, denies the Lord. He's, all lo- He's like me. You don't want to build on me. You're talking disaster. He was referring to the rock of truth that Peter the Rock confessed. The church is built upon the truth that Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock of truth. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is, what is he referred to in Scripture? He is the chief cornerstone. He's even, in Daniel, he's the stone that's not built, uh, cut by human hands. It comes down and destroys all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is the rock. He's the true rock. He's the true light. So the idea here is that Jesus is naming Peter after what he's going to become and how Jesus will use him 
And Jesus, Peter is foundational to the church, in a sense. All of the apostles are. They're the ones that preach the gospel. And so you must understand, and I want to say this with all sensitivity, maybe you have a Catholic background, maybe whatever. I don't want to bash Catholics. But you need to understand, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, not based on my authority, but upon the authority of God's Word. The church is not built upon Peter. It is not built upon popes, and it is not built upon a papacy. It is not. And and, and maybe you're unaware of some of these statistical facts, but the papacy killed an estimated 50 million Christians between 350 A.D. and 1750 A.D., This is not something that the Catholic Church, if you're a part of it, tells you. And if it does, it says, well, we were just defending the truth against heathen. No, who has killed more Christians in world history? The Catholic Church! Kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Fifty million. In his introduction to Romanism... Brownlee wrote, Rome has been drunk with the blood of 50 million martyrs. There's actually a statue of Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, holding the Jesuit constitution in one hand while trampling underfoot a Christian holding his Bible. That statue is at the Vatican today. It's hard to believe, but it's reality. So my question is, again, not Catholic bashing. I've got Catholic. My mom is Catholic. When I talk to her about these things, she goes, huh? I didn't hear about that in catechism. Well, of course you didn't. So my question is, why would Christ build his church upon an entity, the Roman Catholic Church, and a system of leadership, the papacy, that has literally slaughtered millions and millions of his own people? Does that make sense? I ordained the church so it can kill my people. (laughs) That's lunacy. It is a sad fact. It's a terrible, terrible fact. And you know what? As a pastor, it is my duty to give you the facts. It is. Sometimes I don't like talking about it. I don't like talking about this stuff but it's what's happened. Does this mean that there aren't true Christians within Roman Catholicism? I think there can be. I think it'd be hard, it'd be difficult to be a true Christian within that system because it points to almost everything and anything other than Jesus, Mary, the saints. But it can happen. I have met, I think my mom is a legitimate, real believer, follower of Jesus Christ. I do. She talks about Jesus more than she talks about anything else or anyone else. That's a good sign. But I think that the Roman Catholic Church deliberately keeps its adherents ignorant of these facts. This is one of the reasons why a lot of the reformers believe the Roman Catholic Church and the popes and the papacy is the Antichrist because of the damage it's done to the true church, to true Christians. This is is why you have that eschatology, and a lot of it makes sense. It's a sad reality. Just know this. Just know this. Christ, His church isn't complete. He is building His church upon Peter's testimony, not upon Peter, popes, or papacy. He is building it upon the fact, the truth, rock-solid truth and reality that He is the Christ. And that is what makes that and being saved by grace alone, those two things are what make Christianity different from every other religion. We're saved by, by, uh, what? by grace, through faith, in Christ the Messiah. Not by works, not by what we do. So that's the calling of Peter, Jesus knows who he is and what he would do in the future. He calls him Cephas because he knows what he's going to transform him into. He is going to be, he is going to speak the truth about the rock. And Peter himself would be like a rock in many ways. He was a stud. He waned here and there. He had a hard time hanging out with 
Gentiles at one point, and the Apostle Paul had to light him up, but, you know, who doesn't have a hard time? We're, are we perfect? The guy was so humble, and when I think of Peter, I don't think of humility. I think of one who walks around with a shoe hanging out of his mouth because he said stupid stuff all the time, like me. We're talking about a man, when he was to be killed and martyred for his faith, refused to be crucified in the upright position and said, hang me upside down, I'm not worthy. That's impressive. That's humility. That's true power and strength. He actually watched his wife get taken out and crucified before he was crucified. That's the calling of him. Number three, the calling of Philip. Verses 43 and 44. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from uh, Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So the next day, Jesus, Andrew, John, and Peter set out for Galilee. Galilee was the agricultural hub. It was the farming district of Israel. It was Israel's central valley, whereas Judea, the other province or district, was really the religious district where Jerusalem uh, was the primary city. While in, in route, they came across Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a small town in Galilee on the west side of the Sea of Tiberias, a.k.a. the Sea of Galilee, in the land of Gennesaret. It was a fishing town, a fishing community. Andrew and Peter were also from Bethsaida. Bethsaida actually means house of fish. Uh, the translation is house of fish or house of fishermen. So you get an idea of what it was like. When Jesus saw Philip, he said what? Follow me. Real simple. No explanation, just follow me. Philip's response of faith is not recorded, but it certainly took place. Number four, the calling of Nathanael, verses 45 through 51. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, this is how Nathanael responds to Philip's testimony, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This guy was Debbie Downer. I mean, he just, what? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit! Exclamation point. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God! Exclamation point. You are the King of Israel! Exclamation point. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The first thing Philip did was he went and found his friend Nathanael. And when he found him, he declared, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This shows that Philip was well-versed in the Old Testament, and he understood the primary purpose of the Mosaic Law and the primary purpose of the prophets, which was to point to Messiah. And the whole Scripture, that's the point of Scripture, is to point to Jesus. But Nathanael was skeptical. He wasn't certain. He had a hard time with the idea of Messiah coming out of Nazareth. Why? Well, Nazareth was a primitive little farm town like Erlemart or Castroville. How many of you know where Castroville is, right? On your way to Monterey and Carmel, you go through Castroville at a high rate of speed. Castroville. Well, I, I, I don't like Nazareth. But it's similar. It would be like a farming community like that, you know? She always has to have a positive point. She must love Jesus. 
Okay, I won't, you can forget Castroville, just go with Erlemart. How many of you know what Erlemart is? Have you ever been to Disneyland? Paul Rogers is like, I would never go to that heathen territory. Have you ever been to L.A.? You pass Erlemart. It's down, way down there before the grapevine, and it is a spectacular metropolis. Not. It was, it's a modern day Nazareth. And here's the thing. Here's the kicker. Nazareth had a Roman garrison headquartered there. And that is why surrounding communities and folks hated it. They figured they're aiding and abetting the Roman enemy. Like Nazareth had a choice. We're establishing a a, a military stronghold here. And the people were like, well, we're going to vote that out. You didn't vote anything out the Romans were doing. You just submitted or died So it had a Roman garrison there, huge force, and that caused others to just despise it. The Nazarenes are traitors because they like the Romans. Look at what they did. This is why Nathanael questioned Philip. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip was like, I get it, rednecks and traitors, but you got to come and see for yourself. I understand. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Erlemark, come on. And you just think about the plan of God, right? Chooses the lowly things of the earth, the unwise to shame the high, and the, right? It makes sense. But you've got to remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's prophesied in Scripture about Messiah. He's not technically from Nazareth. He lived there for a while. But, man, he just... Philip's like, dude, I understand but you got to come and see for yourself. Come and see. And Nathaniel obliged him. He begins to walk, you know, in the direction of Jesus. And Jesus says this, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Notice the exclamation point. MacArthur wrote, His point was that Nathaniel's blunt, honest reply to Philip revealed his lack of duplicity and eagerness to examine Jesus' claims himself. According to Jesus here in this text, an Israelite indeed is one who tells it like it is, one who is willing to test the claims of another. I'd like to think of an Israelite indeed as someone who's a straight shooter. Nathaniel fit this profile. That was who he was. And Jesus here actually complimented him for it. This is a compliment. Here's an Israelite indeed, like he's saying, here's a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit because a true Israelite is not going to be a deceptive, deceiving, conniving, manipulative person like Jacob. (laughs) Jacob was that, if you know who Jacob was. You never knew where, you would never know, you never know where you stand with a person who's like Jacob. They say one thing to you and they do the opposite. Nathaniel would tell you straight up, what's up? You ask him a question, you get the answer. There's no shenanigans with people like him. Who would you rather deal with? One who shoots straight and says things like they are? I know they can be insensitive. I know they can be brash at times. But would you rather deal with that sort of honesty and that childlike honesty and straightforwardness? Or would you rather deal with someone who just paints a picture and and it's shrouded and cloaked in deception and is manipulative? What would you rather deal with? We know both types. Maybe we are both types at times, right? This is who he was. He was, he said, he literally said, okay, I understand Messiah, but can anything literally good come out of Nazareth? That sounds ugly and mean, and today, you're intolerant. How dare you say that of his community? Erlemart is beautiful. You know, shut up. You know the truth. You grew up in a dump, and now you live in a bigger dump. (laughs) Modesto, come on, quit messing around and speak the truth. I've I've just gotten to the point where I'm saying this to people now. There's 70 genders. There's male and there's female, and everyone knows it, but you will not admit to it. Black is not black, it's white. These people are miserable. And this guy was a straight shooter. Ain't nothing good coming from that place. You're crazy, Philip. 
Nathaniel was surprised, not only surprised by Jesus' reply to him, calling him an Israelite indeed, but he was a bit startled because he had an insight about Nathaniel that only Nathaniel knew about himself. And so he replies, how do you know me? Right? That's like somebody tells you something about yourself and you've never even talked to them and you're not connected to them and you're like, huh? How do you know my address? <laughs> right? Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. Don't put your address on there. Right? How do you know me? And Jesus' answer is absolutely incredible. And it's funny. Not only did Jesus accurately sum up Nathaniel's character without having met him, an Israelite indeed, a straight shooting kind of guy, there's no deceit with him, he also displayed a supernatural knowledge of information known only to him. Nathaniel had a, a special place where he would go to, to study and meditate on Scripture, maybe to pray. Mine is at my, my desk in my bedroom. Rachel likes the kitchen table. Where is your special place where you get alone with the Lord, right? He had one of those places where he would go off and get away from the chaos and busyness of life, and he would go and he'd meditate and pray and read Scripture, whatever it is, he did. And it was under a fig tree. He had a fig tree that he would go to. And if you think about it, this would be an ideal location because certain times of the year you'd get some great food while you're meditating. You get hungry, you just pluck a couple of nice ripe figs. Ripe figs are good. How many of you like Fig Newtons? That's as close as I get. I mean, you could just, just pluck a couple of those bad boys and get your grub on. It also provided him with adequate shade because guess what? That territory, scorching sun. It's high desert, or not high desert, it's low desert. It's hot. It's humid. So you got the food, you got the, you got the benefit of the, the food there, you got the benefit of the shade. What a great place. And Jesus basically told him, my paraphrase, I know about your special place, the fig tree. I have seen you there even before Philip called you. Wow. MacArthur put it like this, Jesus revealed, revealed information that could only be known by Nathaniel himself. Perhaps Nathaniel had some significant or outstanding experience of communion with God at the location, and he was able to recognize Jesus' allusion to it. At any rate, Jesus had knowledge of this event not available to men. Jesus' supernatural insight instantly removed Nathaniel's skepticism and doubts about being from Nazareth. Any doubts and skepticism about his true identity. Nathaniel was so utterly blown away that he burst forth with an incredible testimony. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What a testimony based on this one supernatural thing. And this shows how well-versed in the Old Testament Nathaniel was. He understood that the Messiah would be the divine Son of God and the King of Israel. He understood these things. And this is where Jesus' part is... His response to his testimony is absolutely funny. It's hilarious. And, you know, this is the scripture. There can't be any humor there. Well, there is, right? Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? <laughs> you will see greater things than these. It was as if Jesus had said, you went from nothing good can come from Nazareth to believing that I am the son of God and the king of Israel because I told you about the fig tree. That's funny. That's funny. You've got to understand, Jesus was not questioning the legitimacy of his new faith or attacking his testimony. He was simply stating the obvious. Why? Because Jesus is an Israelite indeed. He shoots straight and says it like it is. They had that in common. He was intrigued by Nathaniel's willingness to go all in at this point, especially since Nathaniel had no idea what was in store for him. At the end of verse 50, he basically told Nathaniel, seeing you under the fig tree is cool. It's a great miracle, but you will see greater things than these. And then he gave an example of one of these greater things. He says, truly, truly, listen to me, Nathaniel, in the truest of 
sense. Listen, truly, truly, I say to you, Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, that's a supernatural thing at a higher level. Jesus was obviously alluding to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, 12, where he saw a ladder with angels ascending and descending from heaven on it, and really actually on Jacob, ministering to him. That's what he dreamed and saw. I think D.A. Carson provides the simplest explanation for what Jesus meant here. He wrote, what Nathaniel and the disciples are promised is heaven-sent confirmation that the one they have acknowledged as the Messiah has been appointed by God. In what ways did God fulfill this prophetic promise and confirm Jesus' Messiahship to Nathanael and to the rest of the disciples? He confirmed it through miracles, through the transfiguration, through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, through the witness of the Holy Spirit. God the Father absolutely authenticated Jesus as the anointed one through a plethora of things, leaving every man without excuse. Lastly, notice the title, Son of Man. He says that the angels will ascend and descend on the Son of Man. This was Jesus' favorite designation or title for himself. He referred to himself as the Son of Man 76 times in the Gospels, all four Gospels. And it refers to, that title refers to his humanity, whereas Son of God refers to his divinity, right? You have the totality of who Christ is and his person represented in those two titles. He is the Son of God. He is God. He is the Son of Man. He is man, right? That's what those two titles mean. So there you have it, the first Disciples of Christ, Andrew, John, maybe James, definitely Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And there you have chapter 1. So let's begin to wrap it up. Okay, you ready? Start getting into an application here. You might be thinking, well, what would we take away from this? It's all been real fine and dandy, but what personal application exists here? Plenty. Here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to underline in your Bibles the words followed, following, and follow in verses 37, 38, 40, and 43. Okay? I think they appear four times in our text. Underline each time you see it. Okay? It's okay to write in your Bible. Right? Some people are like, this one's fresh and new. I'm not going to touch it. Well, you should write in your Bible. Just don't cover the text. That would be to add to the Scripture <laughs> or subtract, actually. Okay, so that's what I want you to do. You underline, followed, following, and follow in those verses. Who's already done it? Who's there? Nobody yet. All right. Let me, let me just tell you what what I'm after here and what, what, I'm, what I'm aiming to do here. I want you to, to see the big idea by underlining those words, that word and its variations. Here, here's the big idea of this text represented in those words. True disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. I don't know how else to put it. True disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. One of the ways that you know if you're a true disciple of Jesus is that you actually follow Him and obey Him and do the things that He commands. There is absolutely no reason for anyone to believe that they are a true Christian and they're not following Jesus. And how many times have you met people like this, or you you have people in your family, you know people who, oh, I love Jesus, but there's just no life there at all. There's no following Him. There's no doing what He says. That number of people is greater than those who are actually doing it. Why? Because the broad road to destruction is huge. It's a super highway. 
The road to eternal life is a narrow path. I think there's a huge misconception and false theology in, in the nation today and even in the church that somehow you can be a follower of Jesus, but you really don't have to follow Him. You can just follow Him with your lips. I love Jesus, and then you just do whatever you do. But according to this text, a disciple of Jesus is one who follows Jesus. You understand? Well, what does it look like? What does following Jesus look like? Well, it can look like many, many things. But I like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. And I just encourage you to turn right over there. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Jesus said what it looks like to follow him right here. Did he say it in other places? Absolutely. All of the epistles... Talk about what it looks like. So there's plenty that's been said about the subject, but I like how Jesus boiled it down in this section. He had multitudes and multitudes of people following at this point. And in this section, we see Jesus make three bold demands that were meant to discourage and turn away the half-hearted. Well, Jesus is all-inclusive. No, He ain't. Well, he just wants everyone to be saved, and he would never turn anyone away or discourage them from following. Yes, he would. We've got a fictitious view of Jesus today in this nation. Well, he's just so kind and so gentle, and he just would never say a hurtful thing, and he's just so nice and loving, and he never judges. Are you kidding me? He's the judge! He said in John 3, those who do not believe in me are damned. That's judgment. And in this section, you'll have your head spun because he said things that were so hard, people no doubt when I ain't following this fruitcake anymore. There's no way. The Messiah would never say anything harsh like this or lay down these, these guidelines for discipleship. Yeah, he did. This section is aptly titled, The Cost of Discipleship. What it'll cost you to be a disciple. What it'll cost you to follow Jesus. What it'll cost you to be a Christian. You see? Now, I don't have time to unpack this whole text. Uh, you could spend a lot of time doing it, but I'm just going to just mention to you and put before you the three demands that are here. There's three. All right? This is what it cost a person to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, a follower. Number one, Jesus must come before people. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me but loves his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters, or even life more than me, he cannot be my follower. And you know he had people in the crowd there that were just so hung up on their siblings and children and all that, that they were saying, well, you know, that's what's most important to me is my own family and my spouse and all that. Now Jesus is saying this, I'm not going to follow him because he's telling me that my family is important. No, he's not telling, he did not tell these people that their families were not important. If you do not care for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. But what he's saying is, is that your family can become an idol and keep you separated from me because you exalt your kids above me or you exalt your spouse above me. Jesus turns to them and says this. They must have been thinking, whoa, I bet half the herd left. Actually, other translations say, if you do not hate your father and your mother, and all, meaning do not exalt them above me. See, that just plays right into the first commandment. Ye shall have no other gods but me. Jesus demands that of his followers, of his disciples. Don't put anyone above or ahead of me. Because if you do, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That's hardcore. But there's two more. Number two, Jesus must come before self. Yourself, myself. Verse 27, whoever is not willing to carry his cross and follow me cannot be my follower. 
The idea here is bearing a cross means dying to yourself, choosing His will and His glory over your will and over what you think you have called glory, and you don't have it. You actually have to, a, a, a disciple to follow Jesus means that I am constantly dying to myself so that He is the focus and He gets the glory and that His will is done on earth through my life rather than what I want all the time. So you cannot exalt your family members and those who you really care about above Him and you certainly cannot exalt yourself above Him. Jesus is not going to compete with our affections. He demands all of it. Is that a hard thing to pull off? You kidding me? I would say that is probably the hardest one to, to actually put Him and to see Him above yourself. And some of us would think, well, that's not all that hard. It is when you really think about it. Because I worship myself more than I worship anyone else or anything. I have to admit, at times in my life, I am what is most important to me, not Jesus. And for some of you moms that have kids, sometimes for you, your kids are what are most important to you, more so than Jesus. Maybe some of you grandmas, your grandkids, maybe not. You're like, man, they were at the house of the weekend. I got rid of them. Praise the Lord. But maybe for some of you grandparents, man, that's, that's where it's at. Those grandkids. You like getting them all wound up and sending them to the parents. Here's a big old chocolate bar. Go home. You just love those grandkids so much. The, the, the affection and the attention is put on someone else. And I'm not saying you have to have affection and attention and love and care for others, but it just can't supersede and go above what you have for Jesus. And that has to apply to ourselves. I think dying to self is the hardest thing of them all. People tick me off. It's easy to say, I like Jesus more than them. Boy, I tell you, that person helped me worship Jesus. And I look in the mirror, it's like, look, it's Jesus. I'm going to worship me. Three... Jesus must come before things, possessions. Verse 33, way down at the bottom of that text, you must give up everything you have to be my follower. He told this multitude of people that I'm, I have to be above anyone and everyone you're connected to. I have to be above you, and I have to be above the things that you own. Don't exalt your stuff, your possessions above me. It's not wrong to have affection for these three things, but it's absolutely wrong to put it all on them. And they, in many ways, become our gods that we worship. I'm always sickened when I'm at a wedding and I hear the preacher or the pastor tell these two people, well, your job is ultimately to make her happy and your job is to make him happy. And I'm in the back going, they're going to die. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Throw a little mix in there. <laughs> they're going to be, you idiot, they're going to be divorced in a year. Your existence is her. And, and ma'am, your existence is him. And you'll be paying mass amounts of child support. <laughs> Who's that guy in the back? There'll be one Christian in there. He's preaching the truth. He'll never work again. Our culture tells us to worship self. Our culture tells us to worship Hollywood. Our culture tells us to worship the government. Our culture tells us to worship the creation. Global warming, it's a religion based on false science. I think that, that, that Jesus' message in that day was hard for people and a lot of people turned away, but could you imagine if he preached that in our culture? He'd probably have his disciples left. And one of them was stealing the, from the treasury. Judas. 
Iscariot. Let me just say this plainly. The cost of being a disciple of Jesus is great. It is great. It is great. And this is why Jesus told the crowds in verses 28 to 32 to count the cost. That's basically what that little parable he told has to do with. You better count the cost. You better think about what you're doing before you put another foot in front of the foot. You better think about what it means to follow me. And here's three examples of what it means. And I'll just say it as plainly as possible, and I'd be the first one to apply this to myself, and I wrestle with it, but if we are unwilling to put Jesus before people, before self, and before things, we are not fit to be His disciples, according to this passage in Luke 14. It's just, it's just I don't like that version. Sugarcoat it. You know, you'll get diabetes. And here's the question that I had for me when I was writing this. Like, Phil, you're writing some really hard stuff here. Are you sure that you can write this and preach this because you're practicing it and you got it all figured out? Well, absolutely not. But here's the deal. Are we actually capable of putting Jesus before all? I say yes, absolutely, because He would not have commanded it if it were impossible. But is it hard to keep Jesus before all? Absolutely. It is warfare. You don't have to leave the house to engage in spiritual warfare. Look in the mirror. But I will say this, and this is, this is, this is the, such a positive aspect to it. It is warfare. But we need to remember that battling for the supremacy of Jesus in our lives, battling to keep Jesus before all and higher than all, it actually does something for us that we need to recognize. It testifies to our conversion. It testifies to our faith. And it testifies to our calling as His disciples. Put it like this, being in the fight tells us that we are in the faith. If there ain't no fight, there ain't no faith. If you are not fighting for His glory and His supremacy in your life, you ain't a believer. But if you are actively engaged in this kind of warfare, it's a good sign. Are you in the fight? I would say it is in our fallen nature to put anything and everything before Jesus. And the residual of that, even after we're saved in our flesh, it just makes it so, so hard. Sometimes we're like hungry fish that just chase after every shiny lure that flies in front of us in the water. We're like Dory from Finding Nemo. We just go after anything and everything. And sometimes we don't fight off the temptation to exalt ourselves or somebody else or whatever, and sometimes we take the bait and Satan yells, fish on, as we shift someone or something in front of or above Jesus. We do this. It happens. So my question to you and to me is, what or who have you put before Jesus? Is it your job? Because that really, at the end of the day, has to do with the exaltation of yourself or your family that you say you're providing. I have to work. I have to take care of my family. You're darn right you do. But if that overrides all of the things of God, you got it wrong. I'm never at church because I have to work. That's idolatry. You're not seeking first the kingdom. You're seeking first all of the things that the king provides to those who seek first his kingdom. you got to flip it. Maybe for some of you, it's your education. You know, you're in school, and that's, that's just it. That's all you focus on. You never study your Bible, but you study sociology and all those papers you write and all that, and that's just, it gets all of your time, talent, and a lot of your treasure, and that's, that's just where it is. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your money that you put before Jesus, your possessions. Maybe it's your booze. Maybe it's your dope. Maybe it's your leisure. What's most important to me is pampering myself. Oh, it happens. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grandkids. 
Maybe it's your girlfriend. Maybe it's your boyfriend. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your boss. He's the sovereign Lord of my life. When he says jump, I say how high. What have you put before Jesus? Higher than Jesus. And I will say the good news is God is merciful to His children. He invites us to partake of His grace in confession. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to submit more areas of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and begin to really honor Him above all. The main thing is not that we'll do this perfectly, because you won't while you're on this side of glory, but you got to fight. You got to fight. You got to fight. And when you succumb to the pressures of the flesh or whatever, you've got to repent. You've got to repent. You've got to confess. Receive His mercy and grace. Begin again. That is what a true follower does. They, they, they work constantly to maintain the supremacy of Christ in their life. He alone is my king. He alone is worthy of my praise. You remember the song we started with, Not to Us? That's the fight of our life. And if we're in the fight, it sounds like we're in the faith. If there's no fight, if there's no tension, if you just do whatever you want, and you claim Christ and you're not following him, stop being like Jacob and deceiving yourself. Be like Nathaniel and admit the truth. Confess, repent, put your faith in Christ. And I'll tell you this, for us who are believers, over time, over time in this fight and in this tension and in this struggle, over time, as long as we're engaged in the fight, over time we can become the disciples Jesus wants us to be. We can. It's possible. And there is so much joy in that. True joy comes from treasuring Christ above all. When we divide our affections and time, talent, treasure, and all that and focus, does working all of those hours actually really perpetuate joy or total and absolute exhaustion? The exaltation of your spouse and trying to maintain that high level of worship is a nightmare. You know how many people have gotten divorced over that? He doesn't make me happy anymore. He went bankrupt. He couldn't keep you happy anymore by buying you all the stuff. There's no joy in any of that stuff. There is no joy in idolatry ever. But Satan tells us that's your existence. That's what will fulfill you. That's what will satisfy you. It's a lie. True joy comes from treasuring Christ above all. So may we as a body seek to do that together and to fight side by side. Putting on Ephesians, right? In Ephesians it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we have to fight for the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Amen?